All right, let's turn again to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. The Lord Jesus experienced much popularity during the first year of his ministry. Great crowds flocked to hear him teach and to see his miracles. Hundreds of folks came to be healed of all kinds of ailments, But as his ministry proceeded, as it grew, so did opposition to it by the religious leaders of the old guard of Judaism. They were suspicious of this newcomer and feared the loss of their own power and authority among the people. So they began to pay closer attention to Jesus to see how they could trap him how they could trick him in the law in some way and cause his grip on the people uh, to be eased. Now Mark has brought together five incidents that reveal to us this mounting opposition. We've looked at the first in the healing of the paralytic in which Jesus showed his authority to actually forgive sins. And since he had the power of God to heal physically, he also had the authority to forgive people of their sins. Now, the next four incidents center on common practices of that day that related to religious customs and expectations. And in each of those situations, Jesus reveals truth about the kingdom of God, the new age that he is inaugurating. Now, the first of these incidences deals with his association with people who were viewed as unworthy of companionship, the publicans or the tax collectors and sinners. The next deals with the issue of fasting. And the final two, which we did not read this morning, concern what is lawful or unlawful on the Sabbath day. Now, in answer to each one of these criticisms, Jesus unveiled truth about the kingdom of God. The opposition actually provided an opportunity for him to introduce new concepts of his kingdom as the old covenant was passing away to make way for the new. Now, today we're going to look at those first two incidences that we read earlier And Jesus is looked down on for eating with people considered by some to be ceremonially un uh, or defiled. And he answers this criticism actually with a mission statement telling them that these are exactly the type of people that he came to to save, uh, to heal, and to bring into his kingdom. The other issue concerns fasting. And the question is asked, why didn't his disciples fast like those of John and the Pharisees? And his answer to this was that the new kingdom is going to be characterized by joy, not the remorse of fasting, and also that the old system of law works must be completely removed to make room for the new age of grace. Now we're reminded here that we need to be careful how we view people out there in the world. Everyone is a sinner 
in need of redemption and should not be looked down on because we're in that group of people as well. Then we're reminded that we're not saved by works of the law, but by grace through faith. So as we look into how Jesus answered these critics, let's ask the Lord to bless his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do pray you would help us to have the view we need to towards the lost in the world like Jesus did and not like the Pharisees. Also help us, Lord, to be refreshed as we realize that we live in the new kingdom age, the age of grace, the age of the church, and Lord, that uh, we ought to serve you wholeheartedly in it. And we pray, Lord, your blessing on your word today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we look at this first incident this morning, I want you to understand that Jesus came to save sinners, not the self-righteous. He came to save sinners, not people who thought they didn't need to be saved. Now, this is introduced to us uh, with the call of Matthew, which prefaces the incident. So let's look at verses 13 and 14 as we begin. Then he went out again by the sea, that would be the Sea of Galilee, and all the multitude came to him and he taught them. All right, so Jesus and his group have apparently returned to Capernaum, the base of operations. It's located there by the Sea of Galilee. And uh, he's walking by the sea. We're going to see this numerous times. It seems the Lord Jesus liked to uh, go here from time to time. He might be going there alone, but it doesn't take long for people to begin to flock to him. And in each situation when this happens, what does he do? He doesn't hold a, um, a miracle-performing uh, ceremony. He begins to teach them about the kingdom of God. And we see this repeated several times. And this also indicates to us that he is still very popular because a multitude comes, a crowd comes, they keep on coming, he keeps on teaching. So this may mean that uh, people would come, a, a large group would gather, they would hear him for a while, they would go back home to do their responsibilities, but immediately be replaced by another group. So he's still very extremely uh, uh, popular at this period of time in his ministry. Now, as they are going along, and perhaps like many of the rabbis back in that day, the people will be kind of gathered around him, and they're kind of moving down the shore, and he's teaching them. They come to this uh, tax office or this tax booth, and that's where Matthew is working. And uh, uh, his name actually here is Levi, in verse 14. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. All right, so Levi is Matthew. This is another name that he has. Uh, You'll remember that Levi was the tribe from which the priesthood came. And uh, uh, Matthew may have, we're not exactly sure why he's got two Hebrew names, But Matthew means um, gift of God. And it could be this became a name that Jesus gave him or a nickname that was adapted as he became a disciple of the Lord Jesus. So while he's there at his job uh, collecting tolls, Jesus approaches him. Uh, This 
kind of like a toll booth, would have been located on the uh, the main drag, the name, main route from Damascus and points east, and people maybe coming in their fishing boats, uh, they would have to go through this uh, tax booth, and Matthew would be collecting customs or taxes from those who are going to trade probably on their way to the Mediterranean Sea. And they had to, uh, they had to pay a tax on their goods. Now, Galilee was in the region that was ruled by Herod Antipas, who was Jewish, but he was under Roman authority. So Levi, or Matthew, was actually employed indirectly by Roman authority, and the Jews hated that. Uh, Tax collectors were viewed like we view IRS workers today. We don't have a really great opinion of them because they're collecting uh, our, our money. Uh, but back then, the attitude was even worse because the Jews hated the Roman authority. They wanted to be their own authority as the nation of Israel. They were looking forward to a Messiah to come and throw off that authority. So this made it doubly bad uh, for Matthew, who was an Israelite. And of course, these people were a group of people that also were in a position where they could kind of jack up the price. They could say the tax was uh, 10% higher than it really was, and that 10% goes in their pocket. Now, Matthew, of course, uh, was probably not guilty of that. But Jesus sees him. Jesus comes up to him in verse 14, and he says to him, follow me. Now, that reminds us of uh, the Lord's call to the four fishermen disciples. And it would seem that at previous to their calling, they would have been familiar with Jesus. They probably heard his preaching. They were witnessing his miracles. We know that um, uh, Peter and uh, Andrew, his brother, James and John, they had previously been under the ministry of John the Baptist. Matthew doesn't seem to be among that group, but they all were familiar with Jesus before he comes to them and calls them. And this call here is more than just an invitation. It's actually a command. And the verb to follow is associated with discipleship. So Jesus is calling Matthew uh, to come into a relationship with him of fellowship, of training, where he is the master um, and uh, uh, Matthew will be among his disciples. So he's going to be a very close follower of the Lord Jesus. They're going to walk the same road. They're going to be involved in ministry together and they're going to be proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew's reaction is immediate. He, he arose and he began to follow the Lord Jesus. So he leaves his post and he continues with the Lord. Now, this was a very great act of faith, perhaps even greater than the four fishermen disciples, because when he left that position, he would never be able to go back to it because it would be filled very quickly by someone else uh, who wanted to, to have the, uh, the money and the authority to be in that place. So when he left, uh, that was a, a final decision. Now this fifth disciple that Mark records is following the Lord Jesus, 
came from a despised background, but this does not preclude him from faith and discipleship with Jesus. So it doesn't matter what our background is, where we come from, or what our station in life is, we can answer the call of following Christ through faith in him, just like those early disciples did. Now, we also want to realize here that Jesus reveals the focus of his ministry in answer to opposition. This calling uh, by Matthew eventually leads into the, the first incident here in verse 15. Now, it happened as he, Jesus, was dining in the house. Now, this would be Levi's house, not Jesus' house. He didn't have a house. And that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. So uh, Luke tells us that Matthew um, called this banquet, which was actually in honor of Jesus, no doubt as a new disciple, he wanted to invite his friends to come, his associates to come, and meet this man Jesus, perhaps hear some of his teaching. He certainly may have had um, evangelism, so to speak, in his mind and trying to reach these folks for the Lord Jesus. Now, the emphasis here is placed on the people who were also at the feast. You'll notice there that many publicans or tax collectors and sinners sat with Jesus at this dinner. Now, we know the tax collectors were looked down on. We could probably understand the mind of a a faithful Israelite about that, looking at these people as being traitors to uh, Israel because they were working for the, 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 the horrid Roman government. But what about this group of, of people identified as sinners? Who were they? Well, we normally think of them as morally corrupt, people who break God's commandments. And in that respect, obviously everybody is a sinner before God. But these people, this particular group that were uh, called sinners, were looked down upon by the religious rulers because they failed to keep the minutia of laws interpreted by the scribes and the Pharisees. So in their eyes, this group, although they were Jewish, they were ceremonially unclean, and you avoided them, you didn't eat with them. However, as we see in our text here, there were a whole bunch of them there. There were many people there, and they followed him, meaning Jesus. So they were actually disciples of the Lord Jesus, even though uh, this group looked upon them as, as sinners and people you don't associate with. Now, That's what brought this criticism uh, from the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, we haven't met the Pharisees yet. We've met the scribes. Who were the Pharisees? Well, they were a very pious, self-righteous, religious faction. They were the conservatives of Judaism. 
very rigid in their interpretation and adaptation of the law. To them, your observation and your practice of those laws is what made you acceptable in God's sight. Uh, Their uh, idea of this was a law works idea. Uh, One commentator wrote, Pharisaism is the final result of that conception of religion which makes religion consist in conformity to the law and promises God's grace only to the doers of the law. So they really kind of had it backwards. But they thought that they were the right ones. So when they observed what was going on, they weren't there. Uh, Apparently they may have been nearby. Somebody might have seen something, and they go and tell these people what's going on. And uh, they, they observed that Jesus is feasting in Matthew's house, and they're very disturbed, they're very critical because of the kind of people that were there. They weren't there, but these sinners were there. So at some point, they asked the disciples what's going on. Verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? So apparently uh, they sent a message or asked for some disciples to come out to ask this question about the Lord Jesus. And uh, at some point, uh, uh, the the question is raised, and in their mind, once again, a holy person, a righteous person, does not keep company with those kind of people. You should especially not be eating with them lest they defile you ceremonially, uh, ceremonially, and you can't uh, participate and some of the things going on in the synagogue. Now, Jesus is going to answer them in the next verse, and this is the first of two mission statements that Mark record for us. The the next one's in chapter 10, verse 45. Uh, Again, we don't know if uh, Jesus sent back word with the disciples Or when Jesus heard it, he came out and he dealt with it personally himself. But this is what he says to them in verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that's really kind of a mission statement. Uh, Why Jesus came, what his purpose was in, in coming. Uh, so he, he, he first draws a parallel here with the work of a physician, a doctor. People who are in good health aren't going to call up the doctor and go uh, see him because they don't really have reason to. However, if you're sick and you recognize uh, that, that you're not getting better, well, then you would go see the doctor and ask him to help find out what the problem was and to cure you. So using that as kind of a background here, he then turns to these people who are criticizing his actions, those who don't think they need a physician because they're in no need of healing, they're righteous. It's not the self-righteous religious rulers that Jesus came to heal and save and call to repentance because they didn't think they needed it. 
And that's an issue of evangelism today. You can't get somebody saved until they realize they need to be saved. You can tell them about the law. Uh, You can show them from God's word that everyone's a sinner. But until they really see it, they're not really going to pay attention to you. They think that somehow it it doesn't matter or that they're better than everybody else and they'll get to heaven on the basis of what they do. Uh, So in a sense, there are a lot of people today who have the same attitude that those Pharisees did. But Jesus says, no, this is not the people I came to save, that I came to deal with. It's really the very people that he associated with in Matthew's house They acknowledge their need, and they are the ones that would repent and would come to him because they know they're sinners. And that's why he calls them. And that's why he will heal them. That's why he will save them. And it's interesting that this is the very group that was already following Jesus. They were his disciples. Now, here's something to think about. Is our view of the lost today like that of Jesus or the Pharisees and the scribes? Now, there's a lot of people out there that do a lot of bad things. We might work with them. They might be next door to us. Uh, But do we look down on them because they're not of our ilk? How can they live like a Christian if they're not a Christian? Do we forget that we once were lost sinners as well and we needed to be saved? Uh, Do we think that uh, they're unworthy of our compassion because they don't do what they're supposed to? They don't know how to act. They come from the wrong side of the tracks or they have uh, no exposure to the gospel truth. What is our attitude toward them? Now, obviously, we don't do what they do, but sometimes I think we can be uh, extremely harsh and, and not try to reach them with the gospel, and we look down on them just like the Pharisees did. All right, now, the next incident occurs in verse 18. And here we see that Jesus describes the newness of his kingdom. He came to save sinners, not self-righteous people. And there are distinctions, there are differences between the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the law, and the New Covenant of grace. So he has an opportunity now to address this. All right, verse 18. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. All right, here's two groups of people, and part of their... um, Uh, religious observance does with fasting. You all know what that is. You go for a period of time and you don't eat. Well, we're not exactly sure why the disciples of John did this. John was an ascetic. Maybe he did this himself. Likely he did. We don't know if he actually taught that they should do it or not. But if you follow the Old Testament, there was only one day in the year you were supposed to fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. As time went by, though, uh, when the people were cast out of the land, they kind of added some fast days. And by this time, there were uh, uh, four or five. But the the Pharisees, who were super self-righteous, they fasted two times a week. 
And they felt like if you didn't fast two times a week, you weren't really as holy as you ought to be. And you ought to follow our example. So people observed that, well, the disciples of John, they fasted from time to time. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. And in their thinking, and this doesn't necessarily mean that the Pharisees were the ones who came and asked this question. Um, uh, it, it could be that the disciples of John, the Pharisees, came. It could be other people who knew this was going on came, and they're just kind of wondering, and they're not really criticizing. So it could be either way here, but it's still an opportunity for the Lord Jesus. So they come to him and says, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? What's the deal here? Um, are you not as holy as they are? Uh, you're not as serious about your faith and devoted as they are. What's going on here? Because in our thinking, uh, you ought to be fasting uh, as a sign of your uh, so-called holiness and closeness to God. And these groups are doing it, but you're not. So what's the deal? Well, Jesus then uses, as he often did, illustrations to answer their question. And as he does so, he's revealing some more truths about the difference between the old and the new kingdom that he is introducing, the kingdom of God that is at hand. And the first thing he do, does is he illustrates uh, with a marriage feast, and he kind of focuses on the bridegroom, the man who's being married. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, back in that time, a wedding feast was, uh, was a, a huge time of great joy and celebration uh, for the Jewish people. And often it would be a week-long uh, uh, festivity. So people would come, uh, they would enjoy their fellowship together, they would eat and they would drink and they would be merry, and they would, they would have fellowship with their family and their friends, much like we do uh, in modern-day um, wedding gatherings that pretty much take up a whole day. Now, uh, that is a time when you would expect there to be festivity and joy and happiness. Fasting, though, is not like that. Fasting is associated with sorrow and grief and pain and self-deprivation. Fasting was a sign of remorse over something. So the kingdom of God is at hand with the coming of the Lord Jesus. So which should it be associated with? Remorse and sorrow and grief or rejoicing? And Jesus is pointing that out. Well, while the bridegroom's here, we're going to rejoice. Now, of course, he's, uh, he's alluding to, to himself in this way. He is the bridegroom. Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Would that be the right thing to do? <clears throat> this is the, uh, the happiest day in the groom's life. So are we going to just uh, be long-faced and sad and, and put on uh, a burlap bags and throw ashes and dust on our head? Uh, that's not really uh, fitting the occasion. So the Lord says, and he's the bridegroom, and his uh, children or his uh, friends are the disciples. And while the bridegroom's there, they rejoice with him. They're happy. As long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. That would just be out of the question. It's not something that you would do. All right, so this reminds us 
I think, of the joy of believers who have trusted Christ as their Savior. Now, obviously, he's not physically with us, uh, but um, your perspective of life totally changes even when you may suffer hardship or disappointment or difficult days in life. You still have the joy of your salvation. But Jesus is not so naive to realize that there will come days of fasting, that the the earthly presence of the bridegroom is not going to be forever. And so he kind of uh, veils the future, what will happen in verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast in those days. Now the verb to take away uh, can have somewhat of a connotation to be taken away violently. So this is kind of a, a veiled revelation that the bridegroom is going to go away at some time in the future and when he's no longer physically present with them then there will be time to fast and of course very likely uh, not a whole lot of feasting was going on from uh, Friday to Sunday when Jesus was crucified and of course um, Christians sometimes fast now but uh, he's, he's kind of portraying here that when the bridegroom's gone, then there may be appropriate times for fasting, but that time is not now. He's with us, and so we rejoice. <clears throat> then he adds to this two other illustrations, the illustration of the, of the garment and the, the wineskins. And of course, we know that over time, Uh, As he says here, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment because that garment has gone through a shrinking process through the many washings. If you put a a new piece to patch that up, what will happen? Well, um, it's going to eventually shrink and shrink and it's going to make the tear worse. So you you really can't do that. Then he uses the illustration of, of, of old wineskins. Now, back in the day, they would store uh, the grape juice. They would put it in these uh, sacks that were made out of uh, animal skin. And as time went by, it would ferment. And when it ferments, it expands. And uh, after a while, you can't use those wineskins anymore because they get brittle, they get cracked. If you put new wine in, it's going to ferment further. And what's going to happen? Well, eventually it's going to burst and it's going to ruin the skins as well as the wine itself. So what's the Lord teaching with those illustrations? Well, he's proclaiming the new kingdom of God uh, prophesied in the Old Testament And so this means that the new covenant is about to replace the old, which was mentioned in Jeremiah and a few other places. And these cannot be combined with each other. They can't be attached to each other. They can't be contained within each other. That would end up damaging both of them 
like the new patch on, a, on an old garment and the new wine in an old wineskin. There's got to be a complete break. The new replaces the old. Now, the emphasis on the Old Testament was law. A law that nobody could perfectly uphold or keep. So that's why the sacrifices were necessary to cover sin until the new age came, introduced by the Messiah, who would offer his life for the sins of um, uh, the people, past, present, future, and that, that sacrifice would satisfy God's wrath on sin, and the old then must pass away as the new comes in. Now this is explained in the book of Hebrews, and I want to go there and just uh, read this section to you in Hebrews chapter 8, <clears throat> because the author is quoting here from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, and is kind of uh, putting the two things together. Beginning of verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, the Old Testament, the old covenant, then no place would have been thought for a second or the New Testament. Because finding fault with them, he says, meaning finding fault with the people of Israel, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their right un unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, that uh, pertains to the nation of Israel, and I believe the future millennial reign of Christ, but it also pertains to the church. It is through grace uh, that we are forgiven of our sins as we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's spoken of here is spoken of the new age, the new kingdom, the church age that Jesus brought to being when he came into the world. And the legalism of the law fades away with the grace of salvation. Now that doesn't mean the Old Testament was, not, uh, was wrong or evil, um, but it necessarily had to pass away with the coming of Jesus. It pointed the way to him, and when he appeared, it then became obsolete, but it's still valuable today because it still points out what sin is and what sin's punishment is. So there is an aspect of usefulness, but it's not the law that saves us. It is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we can make a further application if we look at some of the writings of the Apostle Paul. And I just want to read a couple of these uh, to you today. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> and verse uh, 17, 
We're told, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's that old, new relationship. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their, their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So uh, the old has passed away, the old life, and the new life has taken over. And then if you flip over to Ephesians chapter 4, <clears throat> we see a similar thought, and we'll close with this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. Now, he's, he's talking here about the old man, the old nature, and the new man, the new nature. The old is being replaced by the new. And we kind of break in here at verse 22. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. The old is replaced by the new. The old habits fade away. The new habits begin taking over. Uh, and that is what Christ did as he uh, introduced the kingdom of God. So let's think about some more applications here. First of all, are you a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus. He called his disciples to follow him. He invites us to do the same thing today by believing in his sacrifice, and that provides us uh, with his forgiveness. So he calls us to repent of our sins and to put our faith in him. So are you still like a Pharisee who doesn't think they need to be saved? Or are you like the, the sinners and the tax collectors who did realize they need to be saved? It wasn't their righteousness that was sufficient for salvation. Then when Jesus faced opposition, he was always ready with an answer. He turned it uh, to make a focus on truth. He corrected the wrong thinking of the day. And we must be prepared to do the same thing in our day, to be ready to defend the gospel of truth. As Peter wrote, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And then again, what is your attitude toward those who are outside to the, uh, uh, the tax collector types and the sinners uh, today? We have to be careful how far we carry separation. Lost people are not going to be our best friends, but they can be friends. Our purpose ought to be to try to reach them. And no, we don't like what they do. We don't like what they say. We don't have to agree with those things, but how else are we going to reach them? We can't reach them if we're totally separated from them. We need to be seeking them in their need, not judging them for their sin. 
because we too can have a self-righteous, sanctimonious attitude like the Pharisees did toward people who are outside the fold. And we've got to be careful about those kind of attitudes. Then, are you experiencing the joy of the bridegroom? He's not with us uh, physically, uh, but he's ever present with us spiritually in the person of the Holy Spirit. And joy in life is one of the fruit of the Spirit that comes with our abiding relationship with God. And finally today, have you put away the old ways of life and put on the new life in Christ? If we try to mix the two, uh, it just doesn't work. And that's why Paul says, put off the old nature, not patch it up. Our new nature in Christ is to be consistently changing to be like him. And may the Lord help us to apply these truths today. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, once again, we are thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, for what he's done to save us. Lord, we're thankful that uh, we were once lost sinners, but through his shed blood, we have been saved. We're thankful, Lord, that you call us to discipleship today, to walk with you, to live with you, to proclaim your word. Help us, Lord, today not to have the attitude that scribes and Pharisees did, that they were better than everyone else. They were self-righteous. They looked down on those who needed to be saved, not realizing that they themselves needed salvation. And Lord, help us uh, to put on the new man and put off the old man uh, in character with your new kingdom. We ask all these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.